Welcome to Meet the Musician at the Apple Store Soho in New York. Please welcome this evening's moderator, paper managing editor, and co-host of reading series Words and Guitars at High Five tonight, Michael Tedder. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Yacht. Hello. What's up? Hello, everyone. Hi. So we have Hi. Claire L. Evans, mm-hmm. John Bechtolt, and Robert Key Sweater. How's everyone doing today? Pretty good. Great. Thank yeah. you all for coming out here. Yeah. We're excited to be here. This is super weird. But uh, so, the future will be cooler. That's a very bold statement. And coincidentally or not, I think it was two weeks ago was, Oct- was the month or the day in Back to the Future 2 that it really was, and you'll note we don't have self-lacing shoes or hoverboards or anything. And so clearly, the actual future we have is bullshit. <laughs> but uh, the album is actually a lot deeper than that. What was going on in your mind, and why did you choose that title? Yeah, I mean, the title isn't so much about hoverboards and self-lacing sneakers, although that's convenient from a marketing standpoint. It's really much more about, well, in the way that all science fiction is really about the present. Mm-hmm. This is kind of a science fiction record about the present and about the past conception of what the future would be and what it has turned out to be, uh, both in the context of like art and the way art is disseminated and produced, and larger socio-political issues. I mean, there are references in this song to police violence and drone warfare, targeted drone killings, and a lot of totally unfun things. Because for us, hoverboards are irrelevant if we can't function as a society. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because one th- there's two different theories about technology. Is like, do you feel technology makes us dumber and more inhumane? or just exposes us for what we really are and shows how little we have evolved compared to how quickly our phones are evolving? Dumber, I don't know. I think that's a very reactionary thing. and It's very trendy to be like, well, unplug, you know, but that's mm-hmm. not going to fix anything, really, because we can't unplug. Like, we cannot. We can't live offline anymore. The entire infrastructure of our society will collapse. So it's more about how do we move forward in a positive way and try to remember the value of connection that goes beyond just, you know, likes and retweets, et cetera. Have you enjoyed the heart button today that replaced the fave button on Twitter? I'm not a fan of the heart button. Why? I like it just as an icon. I think it's prettier. Mm-hmm. I just don't get why Twitter would need to conform in that way. Make it even more friendly. Make it more about the feels. I like the heart because it was like it. you like something and you're like, you're a star. You know, like you're a star. It was better than just I like it. It was like a validation of the Do tweet you, wait, as wait, an wait, object. Wait, wait, wait. Did you say that every time you favorited someone's tweet? No, you're a star. Remember you when really you said like favorite and it would like animate the little star? There was a moment in sure. time. Yeah, like, it two would iterations burst. of Twitter ago where it did that. I liked that. Mm-hmm. Fireworks. So let's take it back a little bit. How did you two first meet? Because... Yacht originally started as a spinoff from your band, The Blow. Kinda. Kinda. And from as before, so you started before she was in. How did this yeah. all come about? Uh, Rob and I were actually on tour together. Rob plays as solo as a Bobby Birdman, mm-hmm. and Yacht used to be just me. And the two of us were on a, a U.S. tour together. And one of our last shows was in Los Angeles when we played a gallery show. And Claire, at the time, we didn't know each other, was in a noise band. And her noise band opened up for Yacht and, and Rob. And so, yeah, we, it was like at first sight. Mm-hmm. And we decided to, uh, yeah, be friends and collaborators. Yeah. 
We um, collaborated together for many years under different names until I joined Yacht officially in 2008. The thing about the history of Yacht is that it could be like nine bands, really, if you look at the first Yacht records, even the last Yacht record versus this one. I mean, we could have we could have shuttered, renamed, and started again every single time. We have different lineups regularly. Um, but we like the sense of continuity of having your entire creative historical record available under one name. I think it makes for like a, you know, I don't know, it's like it has a vulnerability. It's like we can't just change our names as people when we decide that we're done with one identity. Like we just move, we have to move forward and, and take the past with you and, you know, be it okay feels with like, that. Yeah, it's a real contemporary trend for artists to kind of, yeah, create a whole new identity for something that they feel like doesn't fit their brand. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there's way too much focus on one's own personal brand when it comes to making art. And so if we're going to, yeah, I think anything that we do, we're going to call it Yacht no matter what. I just I like that idea. Continuity. And now speaking of different versions of the band, your last full-length album, 2011, writes Shangri-La. Mm -hmm. And since then, the band has picked up a move from Portland to Los Angeles. And at the same time from there, you got into a bigger label. You're working with like outside producers like Jack Knife Lee, who worked with like Snow Patrol and Block Party. Justin Mendel Johnson, who's worked with M83s and Beck's band. And the result is like a great album. It's definitely your most direct, accessible pop album that you can dance to. But at the same time, you're making songs like War on Women or mm -hmm. talking about police brutality. Was this kind of like, did moving to LA at all make you a bit more apt to just, just kind of go for it and like try to reach more people on their terms in a hey. pop, kind of pop music way? That's an interesting, I don't think there's a relationship between those two things. I think our move to LA just coincided with us kind of just growing older mm -hmm. and more like having a clearer vision about what we want to do, having tried many different things in the past. We've always had, what, I'm sorry. I was just going to say also, and just say, yeah, being to m almost every major city in the world and then deciding that Los Angeles is the best. Ooh, shots fired. New York, <laughs> what's up? No, Damn. but um, leave. For us. <laughs> for us. For our needs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, no, we've always had a relationship. Like, we've always really cared about uh, creating a a distinction between our lyrics and our music. We've always tried to make pop, pop records with difficult or confusing or alienating or art, you know, uh, lyrics that are in opposition to the sound of the music. I think we've just gotten better at making pop records, mm -hmm. but we're still writing weird lyrics and we always will. And also this was the first time that we wrote with Rob from the ground up. Yeah. Rob's always been a collaborator, uh, but it's always been like, help us polish this turd that we just made, the two of us, or just me on my own. And this time it was we created turds together. Oh, it's true. It's my fault. Because Portland sort of has a reputation of you can go there and hang out and it's cool. Everyone's just happy to do whatever. And like, there's not like it's a very friendly place. Whereas Los Angeles is a bit more hustle and bustle, and you're striving to even make it. Yeah. Is there more of an attempt here to kind of like, are you trying to reach beyond the the, the yacht fans you already have to reach new people here? Yeah, totally. I mean, we want to reach everybody as many people as we can. That's the goal. Without changing what we do though yeah yeah, yeah. i mean we want to present the best and most distilled version of ourselves to the world and we've always operated with this mentality that like everything that we receive in the 21st century we tend to receive through a 2d plane of led and it doesn't really matter like who's behind that plane it can be like a team of marketing people and with you know it can be like graphic designers with tons of training and great software computers or whatever making something that looks good and as long as the end product is good and it's polished and it feels like authentic and cohesive, then it, you can kind of transcend a lot of things. And I think that, yeah, we've always been trying to do that. Yeah, and still while we worked with Jackknife and Justin on the record, it was still completely under our control and we still did, did everything. We're still super uptight, is mm -hmm. what he's yeah. saying. 
really uptight. Yeah. Now, when uh, you're obviously a band that uh, tackles a lot of weighty themes, they're very conceptual. You seem like very conceptual, intellectual type people. Is it tough to kind of reconcile that with making fun music people are supposed to dance to and like rock their bodies with? Like, is it tough to get out of your own heads and get into that space where you're like doing that sort of uh, making pop music? He didn't go to high school. I didn't go to high school. Really? We're just a yeah. bunch of dum dums. I wouldn't have guessed that. <laughs> You're not a dum dum. I'm a dum dum. No, I, I mean pop music can be really intellectual. There's no reason why pop music can't be smart. Uh, a pop song hook is like one of the most efficient, tailored ways of communicating a unit of information that like the human species has ever devised. So, um, you know, we we don't necessarily see there being a distinction between pop, you know, high and low or whatever. I I think you make a powerful message and you stick it in a pop hook, which is not an easy thing to craft, and you have like a you know, targeted virus, essentially, and that is a really powerful thing that, yeah. For those who don't know, one of the reasons I asked that is Claire, in addition to being a great musician, also is a very smart science writer uh, who's written for a number of places, including Grantland, rest in peace. R.I.P. But uh, Yacht isn't just about music. You're sort of like a conceptual entity involved in lots of different things one of which is almost getting more famous in the band Five Every Day, which is, tell me about it. It's this app- application for how to do fun things in Los Angeles. Yes, we made an app. It's true. Um, it's called Five Every Day. It's only really for people living in Los Angeles. Sorry, unless you want to give us money to make it in New York, in which case, please. Um, it just recommends five interesting things to do in LA every day, handpicked and written about by a human person that cares about Los Angeles. It's algorithm-free. Algorithm-free. Proudly algorithm-free. That's our big tagline. Um, It's not crowdsourced. It's just us choosing things for Los Angeles every day. Yeah, it's our way of uplifting the things that we love in LA and trying to point out, you know, I think living in Los Angeles, you tend to kind of glaze over a lot of the history of the city and a lot of what's going on um, behind, like, you know, behind the windshield. And we try to, it's a platform for us to, point out what is going on in the city and point people that are new to the city to what's interesting about it because LA, I mean, just based on your like definition of it earlier, I think people just tend to find it a bit alienating mm-hmm. if they don't know where to go. And so Killer that's Five killed. Every Day is, it's not like that, you know? Five Every Day is, shows the, the warmth of Los Angeles is the hope. And speaking of like outside projects, one of the things, you or not outside projects, but extra musical activities, one of the things you did for this album to promote it was you faxed your artwork, <laughs> or you told your fans where various fax centers were, where they could pick up the artwork. How did this idea come about, and why fax machines in 2015? Well, um, it was fax, like a scavenger hunt, right? It was kind of like, yeah, it was basically, I don't know. I th- we built a web app, yeah. and so you could either send the fax to any FedEx, Kinkos, Staples, or anywhere where there's a, a retail outlet that had faxes available for people, or you could just enter in a number manually. So, like, if you work in an office that has a fax machine, you could also receive a fax there. And then we chose fax machines because, one, they're, they're this dormant technology that is it's kind of ubiquitous. It's kind of everywhere. Mm-hmm. But no one thinks about it or like, likes them or, or really uses them that often. Yeah, Although I mean, in if Japan... If you fax, it's because you have to send a fax for yeah. some reason. It's not because you want to. They're big in Japan. They're big in not, Japan. Not here. Um, and, yeah, and also we wanted to unveil the, the album art in a fun and, and weird way. And the way that fax machines process images is really interesting and unique to fax machines. Yeah, it was also kind of an issue of creating like manufactured scarcity because 
you know, I mean, it's not like nothing is news anymore if you're, if for artists. It's like, oh, here's my album art. Like that's not news. It just disappears from the feed mm -hmm. as soon as it's there because everything's moving so quickly and there's so much other input. So, you know, a, a beautiful high-res image can just be a blip and it can be it re reproduced infinitely as soon as it's released. But something that there's a limited amount of physical things you have to go pick up in real life at a place. You have to have an experience to go get it. I, we just wanted to create an experience that would be limited for people as opposed to something that would just be there and then gone the next day. And it was an addition of only 300, so each fax was individually numbered. Yeah. And how did your fans react? Did they manage to find all 300? They loved it. Yeah. It was the best, actually. We kind of weren't fast. sure. We were like, oh, God, no one's going to come pick up with these faxes. No one wants to go to you Staples and pick up a fax. 300 seemed really ambitious mm -hmm. at first, but then it They it were happened. gone in a few hours. People yeah. just, like, people made it happen. We had so many great stories of people just going going to the Staples or the FedEx and the person behind the counter being like, we have a fax machine? Oh, yeah, I guess we do. <laughs> yeah. Let me go look. Oh, wow. You know, like... A couple kids emailed us and they were like, I plugged it in, but it's not working. This is my dad's fax machine. I don't know what's going on. It was great. Yeah, it was amazing, actually, like our younger fans, and I didn't even think about this part of it, but that they had never used a fax machine before. Mm -hmm. They completely missed that window of technology. And for, so for them, it was kind of magic. And I remember having that experience as like a 13-year-old playing a record for the first time from my dad's collection and being like, what? This makes a sound? You know, and there is something like we forget that mm -hmm. some technologies have those like kind of magical qualities because we think of them as being mundane or old or retro or something. But you know, a fax machine's amazing. It's communication of an image via sound, which yeah. you know is appropriate. There's something kind of charmingly quaint about it. Yeah, totes. And uh, so, for another thing you did for this album was you wrote a listicle, a track listicle, where mm -hmm. for every song you gave a description of what was it about, be it police brutality or economic inequality coupled with a GIF. Mm -hmm. And now many people will gladly tell you that listicles and GIFs and BuzzFeed are like symbolic of the dumbing down of society, the no calorie content. But, you know, some people, you, made it work for your, you made it work for you to get your message out there. Yeah, I mean, it was a bit, it was tongue in cheek, of course. So we were trying to subvert the medium, you know, or like kind of play ball in a way that would allow us to, you know, make an explicit and hopefully nuanced commentary about our own music in a format that would be digestible um, you know, for the audiences that were used to getting their content in little bites. There is, of course, also the other end of the spectrum for us, which is that we, like, will write stupidly long texts and needlessly arcane annotations and we'll make things that are way too complicated for modern audiences, but we'll also try to do things that are really simple at the same time. We're, we're into playing with both ends of these. Yeah, it's kind of what you do. You have to take these really heady concepts and figure out a way to, like, get it in a three-minute pop song <laughs> that's hopefully fun. Yes, 140 characters or less, right? Now, where did you, have you always been interested in this sort of thing? You said you didn't go to high school, but have environmentalism, the way technology alienates us, has this always been a concern of yours? Yeah, I think we've always been, I mean, this guy, John is a computer. I don't know if you know that. I didn't know you were a computer. He is. He yep. was born a computer. And so, yeah, so technology has always been a really huge part of our band. I mean, Yacht started as John kicking a laptop around, trying to be punk, using a computer. And I've been a science writer for over 10 years. So, yeah, these are issues that we really care about. I think, I mean, I don't think it's particularly exotic to be interested in technology or to be interested in the future. That's kind of like, that's the mix that we're all in right now. You know, mm -hmm. I think we're always talking about our relationship to technology and how it changes our relationship to each other. It's a very common point of conversation, I think. And it's also something that, that, that is unifying for a lot of people. You know, We all have that in common in a way. Even though it's alienating, it's kind of nice that we have something we can talk about. Even if it's like, ugh, 
you know, Facebook. Yeah. When you do things like this, do you feel like the message is out there and people understand what you're saying, or is it more just noise for people to have to cut through? Honestly, uh, I mean, I think that when it comes down to it, like the real moments of connection that we have with people where we can, f we can like discover that something actually had an effect out there is still playing shows. It's mm -hmm. still what it's always been, which is like being in a dark room with others in a moment in time. That, that is unchangingly still the most powerful form of connection we have access to as musicians. And now speaking of technology and reaching people, a lot of people don't know this, but back in the day, you used to run a Weezer fan forum, oh my right? God. That's so great that you brought that up. Yeah, I used to run a Weezer f fan website, yeah. Mm -hmm. What was it called? Um, it was called Geek Rock Love. It, yep. wasn't, it wasn't just a fan website. It was the number two largest <laughs> fan <laughs> website. Yeah, one time Geffen sent me a box of records, uh, whatever. Really? Is that true? Real big deal. <laughs> yeah, I still don't know how they got my address. But no, yeah, I was a really big Weezer fan when I was a teenager. Thank you for bringing that up in this context. I really You're appreciate that. The good albums. The good albums. Yeah, yeah, obviously the good obviously. albums. You know, but for what it's worth, I think that like, this is a kind of like really specific moment in time kind of thing, but I think Weezer fan culture in the late 90s was like very, one of those like kind of flashpoint internet cultures. There was like a really robust message yeah. board scene and I had a lot of like internet friends and my first boyfriend was an internet friend I met on like a Weezer message board and... It was for me like a, a, the first time in my life where I realized I could connect powerfully with others mm -hmm. like based on a niche interest using the internet. So in that sense, I think it was somewhat yeah. prescient of what the rest of my life would be like. At one point when you're on message board, even like the band's album starts sucking, you have all your friends, it doesn't yeah, matter totally. anymore. The crazy thing is I, like, I went to like a rentals concert six years ago and then afterwards I was like, I wonder what happened to all those Weezer message board friends I had and I found the message board and they were all still there and it had been like 15 years. Amazing. They were all just like, hey, what's up? You know, like using the same usernames and I like made a thread and I was like, does anybody remember me? And they all did and it just made me feel so guilty in a weird way. Because you left them? Yeah, huh. because I had left them and this community had continued. All right, so I think it's time for the audience Q&A. Does anyone have any questions? Just raise your hands. <laughs> also, if you need help with computers, this is we can do like Genius Bar stuff up here. Hi, this is for Claire. Uh, being a science journalist, do you believe the singularity will actually happen? And what do you think? How do you think it'll affect music? How you make music? I um I think the whole I, the word this I don't know like the singularity as a thing and like the whole sort of a Kurzweil thing I don't like I'm not on that boat but I do believe that artificial intelligence is like the you know artificial super intelligence will be like the major the most important thing to happen in the history of humanity and it will probably happen in the next fifty years I believe that I think <laughs> when it comes to art it scares me but at the same time I think the one thing that human beings can definitely do that separates us from the machines is like make art, hopefully. So maybe they'll keep us around just to do some you know, tap dancing for them or something. You know what I love thinking about, though, is a computer algorithmically finding like the most pleasing sound ever. This is a trip he's So like, on. yeah, computer music that just like makes your brain explode. That sounds great to me. Because there's like brown sound, you know, whatever. There are frequencies that make your body do certain things. So what certain, yeah. They get Sorry. it. They're tittering, they get it. Yeah. So <laughs> are there frequencies that make, you know, that are perfectly pleasing for a human being and would it be would an artificial intelligence be kind enough to create that for us? That would be nice. We'll see. Over there. Thank you. Um, now that I know that you guys are really into kind of tech, um, I wanted to ask a blockchain related question. Oh, wow. 
Okay. Uh, I work for a company called Monograph that deals with blockchain and music, and I just want to know kind of the future of where you see uh, blockchain going in terms of how it's going to work with SoundCloud, licensing. Um, I know it's a full-winded question, but maybe wow. a one-sentence answer. <laughs> yeah, well, let's just say yes. <laughs> now, our friend, can we talk about our friend, I guess? But yeah, but do you even understand what he does? Not exactly. Frankly, it's a little bit above us, above our pay grade. Yeah. Everyone seems to think it's very important. We have a friend who's a working friend who's in blockchain for personal finance issues, and it's like it seems like that's the future, but I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Maybe we can talk about it afterwards, and you can finally explain to us. Our, our friend is the world's first publicly traded human being, so you can invest in him, and then as a shareholder, vote on decisions he makes in his life. From as you know, banal as like what he eats for breakfast to like should he get a vasectomy or not. And, and so he's taken this concept and now applied it in sort of like a Kickstarter way where they're now funding businesses. Uh, Oregon passed some new laws, so this takes place in Oregon. If you're an Oregon small business, now anyone can invest in your business. And it's not like a Kickstarter where you get like a reward back or anything it's like, like that. It's like you actually get equity in the company yeah. legally. And they're using blockchain for that. So that's actually the first, our, our first yeah, knowledge of blockchain, which is now very limited. So well, I don't know. Yes. <laughs> Hey. Hey. Um, Hi. I guess my question is more for the visual side of things. You guys obviously yeah. put a lot of effort into that. Um, what's the process there? Does the music kind of inspire the visuals, or does it all come together as a package? How do you go about that? Great question. It depends. Uh, sometimes we'll have a vision for what something is going to look like fairly early in the process of making the song, and we the two things will develop simultaneously. We like to create uh, kind of design rules for ourselves for each album and sometimes even each single, there'll be like a totally different identity uh, that everything kind of has to hew to, which is helpful for us like to produce graphics quickly and regularly, but also we like compartmentalizing things. We I usually identify them as points in history of our own history. Mm -hmm. Jana does 99.9% .9 of our design. And motion graphics and stuff, and videos and stuff like that too. But yeah, um, a lot of the time it, it changes too. Like for this record, this wasn't going to be the cover we had, I drew a sketch of this idea of Claire um, as like a, a figure with six arms, which is now like a, an alternate image we have behind the CD on the CD packaging only. Um, but yeah, sometimes we have a very strong idea that over time will, will change. And sometimes it's because of the music or because like this, this image was an accident when we, had the, when we did the photo shoot in Los Angeles. Um, but yeah, that's the process isn't, there's no real process. It's just kind of, by the seat of our pants. I mean, everything issues forth into the world from the same two computers, essentially. So it's like we're making, we're like finishing, you know, like recording and producing things and like in another tab, we're making the graphics. So it's kind of inevitable that those things are going to inform one another. And for this record, we also, we worked with a, a type designer that's yeah, a friend of ours good. that we really love named Ian Lynham, who lives in Japan. And we designed two typefaces that we're using just for everything now. One love. of the typefaces, fun fact, uh, the serif typeface, <laughs> this is so nerdy, the serif typeface is actually designed to look like what Asian character sets rendering Roman characters do on accident, which is like messed up kerning and like weird, just like doesn't quite look right. Um, we're the, our typeface is simulating that because we like playing with those kinds and that's of things. In, that's informed by the music and everything because we, we kind of see our band as something that isn't perfect and that, that we insert like mistakes or we like let mistakes live on purpose so we wanted to we wanted the typeface to reflect that so everything is it's all one story together for us 
cool. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming out. Thank you all. Thanks, Thanks. guys.